0: Hi again, Alana here from the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth, and I will be your host for today. Welcome back to another episode of the Divine Lantern. We are so glad that you could tune in today and hope that you take away lots of great learnings. With the blessing of His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower, and enrich. Today we'll be hearing from Father Jeff Harvey, where he will be continuing his Journey to Orthodoxy series. This will be followed by a question and answer segment, and we will finish up with a reading from our Orthodox library. Over to you, Father Jeff.
1: Welcome back to the second podcast of this series, where I'm explaining why I became Orthodox. When I announced to my Anglican parish that I was moving into the Orthodox Church, somebody in the parish said, Father Jeff can't become Orthodox, he's English. And you might think the same thing. In fact, somebody actually said to me on my journey that I should be going to the Roman Catholic Church because that's the Western Church and it's different to the Eastern Church. But actually, when you look at history, you find there's a very strong connection between Great Britain and the Orthodox Church. For a start, Constantine, who became the emperor, was in Britain with his father when his father died. He was in a city called York. And after his father died, his soldiers elected Constantine who became Constantine the Great, to be the next emperor. I haven't got time to go into the story now, but you can see there's a connection there between the Byzantines and Great Britain. Also, if you've ever listened to English crowds at cricket matches, you sometimes hear them singing a song. And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's green and pleasant land? And you might have wondered, who are they talking about? Well, they're actually talking about Jesus. There is a legend that Jesus went with Joseph of Arimathea to England before he appears in the scriptures at the age of 12. Because Joseph of Arimathea was the Theotokos' uncle, if you read the um, Jewish history. So there's a connection there. And Joseph of Arimathea had tin mines that he operated from in Cornwall in south-east England. It's believed that Joseph of Arimathea went to a place called Glastonbury, where there is a church even today, and it's believed actually that he planted his staff in the ground there, which then sprouted, and at every Christmas time it has blossom on it, And that blossom is taken to Her Majesty the Queen every year. And it's believed to be St. Joseph's staff. It's been shown to be a tree from the Middle East. So it's an interesting legend associating Jesus with England. But then also we know that St. Aristobulus, one of the seventy was appointed as the first bishop of England by St. Paul. So we have that connection as well. And we also know that uh, England was really, with the Celtic um, people, was really orthodox until St. Augustine arrived in the 7th century, having been sent by the Pope of Rome. We even followed the Eastern calendar for Easter, and that wasn't changed until the Council of Whitby. Since I've become Orthodox, I've also discovered another connection with the Eastern Orthodox Church. And that is that the emperor of Constantinople had a personal bodyguard known as the Varangian Guard. It's rather like the pope today has the Swiss Guard. He had a guard from overseas because they were thought not to be interested in the local politics and more likely to protect the emperor to keep out of that kind of political mess. And these guards were drawn from Scandinavia and from Britain. So there was that ongoing connection between Britain and the Orthodox world. And another thing that I found out since becoming Orthodox, was a connection with William the Conqueror. He conquered England in 1066. Every English boy knows this. It's part of the history we learn at school. So he invaded England and conquered it completely. It was called the Norman Invasion. But what I learned after becoming Orthodox was that in 1054, we had what's known as the Great Schism, where the Eastern Church and the Western Church came apart can't pin it down exactly on that date but that is the time when things began to unravel and you might ask is there a connection between those two events? They're only 12 years apart and the answer is yes because the Pope blessed William to conquer England because he was worried about this strong connection between Britain and the Eastern Empire and he wanted to make sure that he retained the English jewel in his crown. Another thing that uh, makes people think that anybody who's English can't be orthodox is the fact that after the Protestant Reformation, orthodoxy was pretty well banned from England. Roughly speaking, the first thousand years there was one church, and then for the next 500 years, There were two churches, the Western and the Eastern, and then after 500 years, the people protested against what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church, and that's where we get the Protestant Reformation. And England got caught up with that because Henry V wanted to divorce his wife, and unfortunately his wife was the sister of Philip of Spain, and he was the most powerful emperor in Europe, and he wouldn't let the Pope give him his divorce. So he split from... Roman Catholic Church and started the Church of England and made himself the head of the church and then following that time the Orthodox were allowed back in to London the Greek Orthodox were allowed to have a church there for a short time until the Bishop of London discovered they looked very much like the Roman Catholic Church because they had incense they had icons and other trappings like that and he was shocked being a Protestant, so he actually banned the Orthodox Church from being in England. And that's why English people probably think that we can't be Orthodox. But I've discovered that we were Orthodox, and because of invasions and because of theological differences, we've forgotten the same thing as I was saying at the end of the first podcast, we must must remember. And so I'm very thankful that I've been able to remember what has happened in English history and realize that I can become Orthodox. And in fact, I've come home. When I was received into the Orthodox Church, the church that I was received in had a cake with the words on it, welcome home. And you might think, how can I feel I've arrived home in something... That is in many ways so foreign to me well beneath the surface it is not foreign at all but it's a reversion to the sacred order of things that have always been i can't explain any of it and it's best that i don't try in the next podcast i'll try and explain to you how the good lord got my attention as an anglican priest and drew me into the orthodox church
0: Thank you Father Jeff and we're looking forward to hearing part 3 of your series in next week's episode And now a series of readings from the Philokalia take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our holy neptic fathers with this week's philokalic nourishment
2: We ought to make ourselves each day such as we should be when we are to appear before God. For the prophet Hosea says, Hold fast to mercy and judgment, and always draw close to your God. Saint Phelotheos of Sinai. When thoughts invade you in place of weapons, call on the Lord Jesus frequently and persistently, and then they will retreat for they cannot bear the warmth produced in the heart by prayer, and they flee as if scorched by fire. St. John Climacus tells us, Lash your enemies with the name of Jesus, because God is a fire that cauterizes wickedness. The Lord is prompt to help, and will speedily come to the defense of those who wholeheartedly call on him day and night. St. Gregory of Sinai
3: Just as Adam, through transgressing, became subject to death, so the Saviour, through obedience, put death to death. St. Thalassius of On
0: January 15th in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate our righteous father, Paul of Thebes. If Thebes thinketh the gates of Egypt such a marvel, how much greater Paul, though the gates of life departing. Paul, Thebes's offshoot, died the 15th. He and a sister of his inherited all their parents' wealth, but his brother-in-law, an idol worshipper, threatened Paul that he would betray him to the authorities as a Christian if he did not hand over his share of the property. Paul gave his half of the property to his sister and went into the desert, where he lived in asceticism until his death. The spiritual heights attained by this giant of a monk are testified to by no less a person than Antony the Great, who once visited Paul and marveled how the wild animals and birds of the air ministered to him. Paul lived 113 years and entered peacefully into rest in the Lord in the year 342. On this day, we also commemorate our righteous father, John the hut dweller, who became poor for Christ's sake. This well denying child, his earthly but leaving, hath pitched a new hut for himself in heaven. On the 15th, John moved his hut. He was born in Constantinople, an only child of rich and eminent parents. The young John fled to a monastery in Asia Minor, where he spent six years in the greatest restraint prayer and obedience to the superior. Then the devil attacked him to return to his parents, which he did, but he dressed as a beggar and remained in their courtyard, living off the crumbs that the servants threw him and enduring much ridicule from all. He lived thus for three years, praying to God that he would save the souls of his father and mother. They eventually recognized John by a precious gospel book which they had given him in childhood. He saved his soul and those of his parents, overcame the devil and entered into rest in the Lord in about the year 450. On this day, we also commemorate the Venerable Martyr Panasophios of Alexandria and Gabriel of Lesnovo. By the intercessions of thy saints, O God, have mercy upon us. Amen.
3: What is the Orthodox Church's stance on looking up to contemporary non-Orthodox figures? In other words, are we allowed to look at their good qualities and apply them in our own lives? As Orthodox Christians, we should always look to Christ as the most important model for our lives. We must put on Christ, take up our cross, and follow him. We should also look to the saints for inspiration, since they also followed Christ. As St. Paul wrote, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Nonetheless, we are also surrounded by non-Orthodox figures who, for better or for worse, may have a large influence on our lives. But would it be wrong to take good qualities from non-Orthodox figures? As always, the saints of the Church offer us valuable insights concerning this topic. In particular, we may look to the life and writings of St. Basil to understand how we should approach non-Christian figures and culture. St. Basil is a prominent bishop and theologian, was exposed to greek philosophy and literature from a young age rather than condemn greek culture because it was non-christian he sought to practice discernment and gather anything good he could find in fact in a fascinating text titled "Address to youth on how they might benefit from greek literature basil does exactly what the title says he instructs christian youth on how they can find examples worthy of imitation in non-Christian Greek literature. He famously uses the metaphor of the bee to describe how we may benefit from non-Christian examples. Just like the bee does not visit every flower, nor carry away the whole flower that it visits, so too should we be careful not to accept every non-Christian Orthodox influence in its entirety, but only select that which benefits the soul. So, what are some of the good examples mentioned by St. Basil? Perhaps one of the most famous is the philosopher Socrates, who was physically assaulted but did not seek revenge on the man who harmed him. Here, St. Basil suggests that Socrates turned the other cheek, and that we should follow his example just as Christ instructed us to turn the other cheek. Another example is the philosopher Diogenes, who rejected material possessions, like Christian monks. St. Basil even uses examples from Greek mythology and legend. For example, Hercules, who was given the choice of the difficult path of virtue or the easy path of pleasure. He chose the former and was able to become a god. Here, St. Basil is alluding to the narrow and wide paths mentioned by Christ in the Gospels. If we also choose the difficult path, we may also become partakers of the divine nature. Having said all of this, it is important to note that St. Basil himself says that it is better to seek virtue by following the examples of Christianity first and foremost. Everything non-Christian is secondary and must be sorted through the lens of Christianity. Unless we familiarize ourselves with Orthodox Christianity, we may be deceived by what only appears good in non-Orthodox figures or sources. After all, what is evil is sometimes disguised as sweet honey. Ultimately, we, as Orthodox Christians, should follow Christ and the saints. However, concerning non-Orthodox, we may heed the advice of St. Paul, who wrote the following to the Philippians. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good rapport, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things.
0: And now a reading from our Orthodox Library.
2: Step 1. Renunciation A friend of God is the one who lives in communion with all that is natural and free from sin and who does not neglect to do what good he can. The self-controlled man strives with all his might amidst the trials, the snares and the noise of the world to be like someone who rises above them. Every Christian is called to a life of renunciation. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Before baptism, we renounce Satan and all his works, and all his angels, and all his worship, and all his solemn rites. Christ tells us, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight but now my kingdom is not from here. Therefore, those who follow him are not of the world either. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you." St. Paul warns us, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. It is clear then, that renunciation is not exclusive to the monasticism, but is an intrinsic part of being Christian. While the monastic life involves a physical separation from the world or from people, most Christians must live within normal society. What's more, it is often a society that is not Christian and may even be openly hostile to Christian belief and practice. Even if we are living in a big city, getting on with our daily lives along with the rest of society, we are called to renounce the world. In this sense, The world means all the things that are opposed to Christ and our salvation. The world, in the sense of God's creation, is good, and we are all a part of it. However, remote monasteries or hermitages may be, all monastics lie beneath the same sun and moon, breathe the same air, and share the soil and fruits of the earth with all humanity. But just as monastic rejects the worldly way of life, The pursuit of wealth vanity pride and carnal pleasure so too every christian must reject these things albeit some of them to a lesser extent christian marriage while it involves sexual pleasure is not unbridled lust and selfish hedonism and while we all need money to live we are not to be avaricious or greedy there can be no ascetic life no true spirituality if we are not willing to break with the world in terms of what we hold dear and what constitutes the centre and focus of our lives. St. John mentions three fundamental virtues that form the foundation of ascetic life and liberate us from slavery to the things of this world. Innocence, abstinence, temperance. These make a fine, thrice firm foundation. Let all infants in Christ begin with these taking real infants as their example. For among children, no evil is found, nothing deceitful, no insatiable greed or gluttony, no flaming lust. We are not seeking the impossible. Our quest is not for something unknown. We all begin life as perfect and sinless infants. Of such is the kingdom of God. What we seek is what we once were, something we all know and have tasted innocence. When speaking of such things as carnal pleasure, many say, where is the sin? It is perfectly natural. But they forget that by nature we in fact mean a fallen nature, a nature that has been distorted by sin, by the knowledge of evil. Thus, as we grow up and increase in knowledge, we lose our innocence. God wants us to have a child's heart. Thus, Saint John tells novices of the monastic life to look to infants as their example. We can take this to apply equally to adult converts or nominal Christians who have only now decided to make a beginning of spiritual life. God wants us, though grown up with adult minds having knowledge, wisdom, and understanding to be like children. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Christians renounce the world by living for something other than the world. By living thus, we become the light of the world. This was beautifully expressed in the second century in a letter to Diognetus. For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language or custom. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life. At the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, indeed, in their private lives they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted, yet those who hate them, are unable to give a reason for their hostility. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The soul is dispersed through all members of the body, and Christians, throughout the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, but is not of the body. Likewise, Christians dwell in the world, but are not of the world. The soul, which is invisible, is confined to the body, which is visible in the same way Christians are recognised as being in the world and yet their religion remains invisible. It is clear then that renouncing the world means far more than abandoning urban society for a monastic community. This is part and parcel of monastic life, but not all of Christian life. The rest of us have a powerful role to play within society by living a Christ-centred, not a world-centred life. St. John of the Ladder was keenly aware of this also. When he was asked how those who are married and living among public cares can aspire to monastic ideals, he answered, Do whatever good you may, speak evil of no one, rob no one, tell no lie, despise no one, and carry no hate. Do not separate yourself from the church assemblies, show compassion to the needy, do not be a cause of scandal to anyone, Stay away from the bed of another, and be satisfied with what your own wives can provide you. If you do all this, you will not be far from the kingdom of heaven. The outward circumstances of life are not the same for all of us. Whether we are celibate or married, whether we are living in a monastic community or a marital one, whether we are living in a bustling metropolis or a remote village, we are all called to renounce everything for Christ. This does not mean rejecting and abandoning our careers, families, and friends just for the sake of doing so. Rather, it means that given the choice between all these and Christ, we choose Christ. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. But let us not forget that for most of us, it is through these blessings that we learn to love Christ. If the monastery is the arena for spiritual training of the monk, then the home, the family, the workplace, the busy urban street are the arenas for those in the world. We must choose the way of life that is most conducive to our spiritual progress. And as Saint John writes, the real servants of Christ using the help of spiritual fathers and also their own self-understanding, will make every effort to select a place, a way of life, an abode, and the exercises that suit them. Community life is not for everyone because of gluttonous tendencies, and the solitary life is not for everyone on account of the tendency to anger. Let each seek out the most appropriate way. Do not think monasticism is the only way to holiness. Even outside monastic life, by confronting all of life's temptations and adversities with patience, humility, and love, especially in our dealings with others, family, friends, colleagues, strangers, enemies, it is possible to reach the very summit of virtue. There are many roads to holiness and to hell. A path wrong for one may suit another, Yet what each is doing is pleasing to God. As Saint Simeon the New Theologian writes, Provided they live a worthy life, both those who choose to dwell in the midst of noise and hubbub, and those who dwell in monasteries, mountains and caves, can achieve salvation. If God has called you to live in the world, then you are the light of the world. Whatever the outward circumstances of your life, however chaotic things may be at times, You can have a little monastery in your heart where you may retreat to find solitude and strength amidst the troubles and temptations of life. Remember, the kingdom of God is within you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the divine lantern as always if you liked what you heard please subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and don't forget to share with your friends and family we hope to catch you next week